morning again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we focus now on your word, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would transform the words, transform what is said, what is heard, that you would be glorified in all that happens this morning. Please speak through me in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when we uh, last left off, uh, there had been a revival in Ephesus following the episode of the seven sons of Siva, that Jewish chief priest. Um, those sons had been trying to cast a demon out in the name of Jesus, but the demon, realizing that those guys didn't know Jesus and weren't followers of Jesus, used the body of the demon-possessed man to beat him up, and uh, which led to an honoring of the name of Jesus in the community and a bunch of conversions and a whole lot of repentance of people by people who were Christians but who had been holding on to things from their past lives. And that led to what the verse right before our text says, which is, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Well, it did. <laughs> and today's text says what happened after that. Today's text occurs after a period of about three years of increasing and mightily prevailing of the word of the Lord. And in today's text, we encounter a consequence of that increasing and prevailing. After these events, which are words that begin our text, um, after these events refers to all the stuff that we have covered so far in our look at the Ephesians church, such as the, the completion of the gospel for those who only knew of John the Baptist's baptism of repentance, such as some of the believers in Ephesus learning of the Holy Spirit and experiencing manifestations of his power, such as the miracles done by God. Remember that miracles done by God through Paul and demons being cast out and, and people being healed, such as that revival that we talked about last week that ended up in that bonfire of magic books. So, after these events, also refers to everything that occurred that isn't recorded in that church that isn't recorded in that three-year period that Paul was there in Ephesus. And at this time of dynamic and fruitful growth in the church of Ephesus, uh, which is you know the, the period that we're looking at today, this church is only four years old. Now, um, now hear the word of the Lord as I read it. Acts 19, starting in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time... There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But they recognized that he was a Jew. And for about two hours, they crowd out with a one loud voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen who have a complaint against anyone The courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Thus ends the reading of the word. So, after all of what had happened prior to this riot, Paul decides by the leading of the Holy Spirit that it's time for him to leave Ephesus and go back to Macedonia where there were some things he needed to take care of, for instance, in the church in Corinth. He also wanted to visit some other areas, maybe for the first time, maybe as follow-up visits, and he wanted to go to Jerusalem and Rome. So with his plans set, he sent a few brothers, Timothy and Erastus, Timothy who would later become the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Uh, He sent them ahead while he stayed behind in what is called Asia, but primarily there he was in Ephesus, to wrap up a few things that that needed to be taken care of. 
However, before he could take off, a riot occurred. Now, as you recall, Ephesus was the home of the temple of the goddess Artemis, as the Greeks called her, or Diana, as the Romans called her. And, and both names can be found in your scriptures, depending which version you're reading, actually. One of the consequences of having the temple in Ephesus, which was impressive enough to be considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, um, one of the things was that, the, that people came from everywhere to see it. Plus, the temple served as one of the major banks of the Roman Empire, which brought even more people and money to the city. And as the center of worship for the fertility goddess Artemis, with all of its associated uh, sexual promiscuity and perversions and other activities, debauchery was kind of characteristic of the place. This meant tourism. Think of people going to New Orleans, supposedly for a business meeting, but it happens to be during Mardi Gras. Or sure, there are reasons to go to Las Vegas for conventions, but it's often for more than business. There were other reasons that people also came to Ephesus. Well, all this tourism, in addition to the ongoing local demand for idols and trinkets, associated with the worship of this false god of fertility, led to some major revenue opportunities for people, both locally and not. And these, these people, local and not, would acquire things. Uh, many of them would do them like uh, we might pick up a miniature statue of limit, you know, liberty and bring it home. The, the difference, though, was that these things were made out of silver and were, or, or precious items and were very valuable and wouldn't end up in a garage sale. They would end up being worshipped or feared or having offerings made to them. Anyway, some of these uh, local businessmen who made a lot of money selling these silver trinkets and idols had noticed a definite drop in revenue and business activity since this Paul guy had shown up a little over three years prior to this and was preaching and teaching about Jesus. One of them, this guy named Demetrius, was particularly upset. And this is important that we, I need to note this because it might sound a little bit like the people we see in our newscasts. For Demetrius, the primary issue was absolutely not a question of whether or not what Paul was saying was true. Candidly, the facts or the truth of the claims about Christ did not matter to him. Demetrius was not even primarily concerned about the issue he later used to motivate the mob. The real issue for Demetrius was that his income was being impacted by Paul and by this growing dynamic church in this city of 200,000 plus people. So Demetrius decided since he could not win in the court of reason or as proposed by the city official at the end of the story through proper channels, Demetrius decided to appeal to the greed of some of his fellow business associates Yet realizing that it might sound too much like he was particularly concerned about his own pocketbook, which would not get the support that he had hoped for, he turned to a well-accepted approach 
of appealing to a worldview that was more palatable to the masses. And then he got them riled up enough that they went on the attack. Think of Antifa. Think of Black Lives Matter. Or think of a white supremacist who, in order to garner or maintain support, will, will quote scripture, out of context, of course, to justify their hateful and despicable activities. Or, or think of a politician who, in the name of human rights and dignity, supports the travesty of butchering unborn children because it might help him get elected in the primary. Demetrius was um, just being strategic. Demetrius moved on from a purely financial appeal to a religious appeal and said that if this Paul guy was allowed to continue, their goddess and their temple might even come to nothing. For what it's worth, a, a goddess who is diminished by people not buying her trinkets to the point that she might eventually come to nothing, well, that's not really a god. When, when someone turns their back on Yahweh, it doesn't diminish Yahweh in one bit. It diminishes the person who turns their back on Yahweh. But this goddess needed the protection and advocacy of the people who made her trinkets. Demetrius and his business were just trying to figure out how to get the crowd behind him. And it was much more palatable to the mob to argue for the dignity of their false god than to cop to the real issue, which was their pocketbook. Remember I said this might sound a little bit like the people we see in our newscasts? This is similar to the person who, who says, let's fight for clean air as he flies around in an air-polluting private jet, advocating for clean air stuff, which happens to be something he's heavily invested in financially, or similar to a pharmaceutical company who's making abortion drugs, saying that they're really, really concerned about the freedom of choice, not mentioning the impact of their bottom line. But beyond all this, there, there's something even more amazing than the commonality of the human behavior. And it's this. The growth and dynamics of the Ephesian church, remember this church is only about four years old, was so dynamic and so vibrant that it was altering one of the primary industries and economies of one of the leading cities of the world. That's pretty amazing. Imagine if the behavior and growth of the church in America and in Quilcene caused the decline in the sale of pornography or hampered the, the woke, confused sexuality nonsense or, or reduced the number of drug overdoses. Wouldn't that be something? This is a situation where the people who were converting to Christ and who were actually living it out had such an effect that the actual sales of idols was going down enough to impact the whole mega industry that sustained a whole bunch of other businesses related to idol worship. For Demetrius, the spread of Paul's gospel was simply taking too big of a bite out of his wallet. So he decided to get rid of Paul. Never mind considering the facts that he was peddling something that he probably didn't even believe in himself. I mean, he made the idols. He sold them to people. 
So he's in control. How could he not question what's going on here? And think about his accusation that, that he made against Paul to the crowd. He said that, and this was gravely offensive, he made this like a really big point, that, he made, that Paul was saying that things made with hands are not God's. The obvious answer or response to that is, duh. I mean, think about that. Things made with hands, and that, he used that to provoke the whole crowd. But as referenced earlier, facts don't matter, such as when people are attacked for stating obvious things, like there's a difference between a male and a female. Anyway, Demetrius launched into his religious, political, cultural, blah, 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 and the riot starts, and the rioters go looking for Paul. When they don't find him, they grab two of his traveling companions who were not even from Ephesus and haul them into the theater, the place for civic events, where they are figuratively getting ready to be tarred and feathered or lynched or something really bad is going to happen to them. And they end up, this mob ends up chanting over and over for two hours. I mean, that's a lot of chanting. Great is the goddess Artemis. Great is the goddess Artemis. Again, I, I cannot help but see the violent mob screaming Black Lives Matter and crying for justice as they're committing crimes or thinking of Antifa thugs rampaging through a city while many of the sometimes good-intentioned people are caught up in this wave of chaos and they don't even know what the protest is about. That's what's kind of happening here. In the midst of this encounter, we encounter this group called Asiarchs. And I'm just a little aside, just because these are people who were mentioned. These are most likely uh, were Roman citizens and magistrates and officials from the, the surrounding area. And they, they were considered Paul's friends. Uh, that's what the scripture says. And they were probably concerned about the foolishness of Paul, a Roman citizen on top of it, going rushing into that ruckus. They, along with some Christians, eventually convinced Paul not to go in, which, I mean, if you think about our brother Paul, probably took a lot of restraint on Paul's behalf. And yet, things worked out, even without Paul following his first impulse to go charging in there. And this is a tangent, but it's worth noting. The next time that you feel obligated to go headlong into a chaotic situation because you think you would be defending the gospel or some other cause, consider Paul's behavior in this episode. Certainly, he goes headlong and doesn't stop in many cases, but not always. There's this thing called wisdom. And you know what? Things worked out. Next, we encounter Alexander, who is a Jew despite the Greek name. The, the two main conclusions reached on him are that he was either the same Alexander that Paul had serious problems with in the church there in Ephesus that, that Paul even addresses to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, Timothy, in the second Timothy. If it is that Alexander, that would have made Alexander, the one who the, they put forward, a member of the church at this point. And he has, that Alexander was a coppersmith. And so he might have been kind of a liaison between the groups. That's what some people think. Or some people think that he was just a Jewish guy who was put forward by other Jews in order to differentiate themselves from that Jewish guy, Paul, saying that Paul's not one of them. 
because the Jews also had some beef with Paul uh, for very different reasons. Regardless, it didn't matter what Alexander was going to do. They don't want a di- the mob doesn't want a different perspective. They just shut him down because of their anti-Semitic position. So in steps the city official who actually does a masterful job. He starts off with a grand and meaningless pandering to the idea of the greatness of the goddess Artemis. Again, as with most politicians who recite religion, uh, no matter what religion, whether it's a political Muslim whose real issue is revenge or a congressman who is pandering to some electoral block, um, what, what the city official really believed wasn't really relevant. The city official's biggest concern was not Artemis or the economy. It, it was the riot itself. His, his pandering was to get their attention, and, and it worked. Uh, he then does a few things that kind of shuts the mob down completely. First, he, he counters Demetrius' claim by saying that Paul's traveling companions had not done anything wrong and were not sacrilegious, which was true. And he went on to say that they, um, they were not blaspheming Artemis. Now, that one's kind of a stretch because... Uh, saying Jesus was the Lord of Lords and that there is only one God and his name is Yahweh and would, would have been an assault to the fake Artemis. But ultimately, that didn't matter to the official either. He then moved on to his main point because if he didn't get this thing under control, it would come back on him. He pointed out that because of this riot, they were running the risk of provoking the Roman government and that would not be good for them. He basically was saying, any other concerns are no longer an issue. The riot is the issue. And if it doesn't stop, then you, we, might get beat up by the Roman government. And he had their attention. And he exposed Demetrius and his real agenda. He says, Demetrius and the others need to take this issue up through proper channels. The message to the crowd is, are you aware that you were stirred up and, and you're now at risk of getting in trouble with the Roman government primarily because Demetrius was concerned about his pocketbook? That was the message. And that was a good strategy, and it worked. I have to wonder if people who are busting windows and committing crimes in response to the latest news story, if they really understood that there were actually pawns of people making money off their activity, whether it's through TV advertising or getting elected one party or the other or selling T-shirts. If they knew, if these people knew that they were really being used as pawns so that other people could gain money and power, I wonder if they would continue to riot. Well, the whole account ends with Paul meeting with the disciples, members of the church there in Ephesus, encouraging them, which they probably needed as the riot most likely set some of them on edge. After that, he says his goodbyes and he leaves. Now, if you recall, the the, the reason that we're looking at this text is that I'm using the information in the scriptures and the history that we have on the Ephesian church as the outline for this sermon series. And the goal is to learn from these brothers and sisters who who have gone before us. So so here are three observations I want to summarize from this text and from the Ephesian church's experience. 
the, the first one is that this whole thing took place in the Ephesian church's hometown. In last week's message on, on the prior text, I, I talked about how Ephesus was not a good place. Raunchy, debaucherous, perverted, materialistic, hedonistic, name it, demonic activity, worship of false gods, fear. And I'm not talking about San Francisco or New Orleans or Seattle. I'm talking about Ephesus. That was the world that church was in the midst of. And and while it is kind of similar to ours, it was arguably much worse. And the church and the gospel flourished to the point that it changed the economies and the culture of the city. We need to ask, how frequently do we find ourselves saying, it's really awful out there, and I don't know how we will ever be able to get the gospel out? Well, it was probably worse in Ephesus. And yet these believers had such an impact that it was impacting the major industry of idol-making in an idol-making city. And they didn't do it through political campaigns, and they didn't do it through boycotts, and they didn't do it through marches. They did it through being the people of God and following Jesus and proclaiming Jesus. So when we look at the craziness and sinfulness and disgusting things around us, we should not surrender and we absolutely should not lose hope. We should be the church of Christ and live like it. This leads to the second point. What are we doing to impact our society? Obviously, uh, there's no way I could possibly answer that question adequately. But, but we need to ask and think about answers to that question. One thing that is absolutely for sure, according to the scriptures, is that we are supposed to love one another within the church. We need to do that more. Specifically caring for each other's needs and letting the world see it. But if you recall from the message a few weeks ago, the only way to really do that is by not trying harder, but by looking and really understanding who Jesus is and what he did. If we do that, we will impact our community. And we're to love those around us. The community closet is a a great means to do that. Let's do more such things. We will change the world. Having integrity in your workplace will also have a significant impact on your environment for the kingdom. And there's plenty of others. But one thing I'm pretty confident of is that the believers in Ephesus did not set out with an agenda to mess up Demetrius' income stream. But what happened, as they set out to honor God, as we saw they did last week, when they repented of holding on to things 
from their past, and they burned all their magic books, letting go of things that they had not relinquished to God. When they did that, things happened. We need to so live that we have an impact on the country and on Quilcene. And finally, we should recognize that so doing is not easy, and we will need encouragement. After all the chaos of the riot, Paul's already planned to leave, everything's set. Paul met with the believers to do what? To encourage them. He knew that those same people who were about to lynch Paul's companions were the neighbors of the members of the Ephesian church. And they, they, they had to continue to live next to him. How, how could those Ephesian Christians not be asking, I wonder if I'm next? We need to realize that we, as followers of Jesus, in this world and in this place, live on the edge. And that's just the way it is. And we need to encourage each other. It would be easy for the world to turn on us. And it might. And it might really soon. It already is turning on some of our brothers and sisters in other places. And whether you're following individual cases of a brother or sister who would not bow to the God of wokeness or whether you're following Christians in a place where Christians are being jailed and murdered for their faith, the truth is, it could be us. It might not be. But many, many, many to whom persecution happens did not see it coming. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus said, it is coming. When, where, we don't know. But when or if it does come, God has promised that he will not give us more than we can handle if we abide in Jesus. That's how we encourage each other, to abide in Jesus. So the way to be positioned for whatever may come is not via stocking up on emergency supplies, which, which is, there's nothing wrong with that or being politically active. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the best plan is to be so rooted and grounded in the rock of Jesus that when the storm does come, we will be wrapped up in the one who can and will weather the storm. We need to abide in Jesus. We need to encourage each other with this in mind. So the, the riot in Ephesus exposed a lot of things. Uh, from the agenda of those who attack and that self and money are often behind a religious or philosophical justified attack. It exposed that to maybe the potential consequences of exposing attackers' real agenda that, being, that, that might undermine some of the attackers' attacks. But more importantly, our text reminds us that if the church lives a life of following Christ, if we behave like the church of Christ, his body, it will have an impact on our community and even impact economies. And while we might want to say that our country is too far gone, Ephesians, Ephesus was more gone. And while we might not know what to do to impact our community, 
we know one thing for sure, that loving each other and those around us will change things. And finally, we, we need to be encouraged. And we need to continually encourage each other, both to be who we are in Christ, but also just in case. Because we could be next, but the one we serve will overcome. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would transform us into agents of change in your world for your glory. That as your body, you would use us to minister to each other and to those around us. That you would give us courage and wisdom. That you would give us strength and that you would help us love by keeping our eyes on you. In the name of Jesus, amen.